Go ahead and get our Bibles out to John chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Black Pew Bible in front of you. We're going to be on pages 895 and 896. Do you guys remember when we used to watch TV on TV? Some people had cable, other people had satellites, but we all watched television on the television. Before the internet, before streaming services, before binge watching was a thing, we used to have to plan to watch our favorite shows. So you take Grant Miller, for example. Grant Miller, his favorite show growing up was Dharma and Greg. And so he would always have to prioritize being at home in front of the TV on Thursday nights at 7 p.m. Central Time so that he could watch his favorite show, Dharma and Greg. Anyways, one of the things that these Gen Z kids will never understand is when your favorite show had to be continued. Right? You guys remember that? There's nothing you could do about it. And you'd... Ah, no, I want to see how this ends. But you had to wait until next week to see what was going to happen. Sometimes you would even have to wait until the next season. You couldn't just hit the next button on your Netflix. And here we are today. Last week, we had to hit to be continued on John 9. There was just a lot of material there for us to uncover, right? So what we did was we dug into the text, we got our bearings We hunkered down on one key idea, the fear of man, and then we had to have the to be continued signs go across the screen, and here we are today digging into the rest of John chapter 9. Now, if you're old enough to remember the to be continued episodes, then you probably also remember when the second episode would show, it would always have a little brief recap of the first episode so that you weren't lost in the sauce as you were digging into part two. So let's, let's do a little recap of where we lo- were last week. In John chapter eight, we saw Jesus stand up and declare himself to be the light of the world. Then in John chapter nine, Jesus and his disciples, they came across this, this blind man. They asked questions about his sin and how it was connected to his blindness. Jesus fixed their theology, and then he healed the blind man. This caused a controversy between the blind man and the crowd And Jesus, who is he? Is he a prophet? Is he from heaven? Is he a sinner? They get the Pharisees involved. The Pharisees are having none of it. They are not on team Jesus. They bring the the blind man's parents in for questioning, who, because of the fear of man, they didn't want to be put out of the synagogue, they refused to acknowledge Jesus before men. And that is where we pushed pause. That's where the to be continued graphic rolled across the screen. So let's pick back up in John chapter 9, verses 24, beginning in verse 24, and we'll read to 41. So, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, what did he do to you? 
how did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know. We don't know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, Well, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus then said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard him saying these things, and they said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible and completely sufficient word for our lives. Amen? Amen. I've got four points for you this morning. Evidence and belief, theology and belief, election, oh, excuse me, three points. I didn't correct that in my notes. Three points. Evidence and belief, theology and belief, and then election and belief. Evidence, theology, election. Let's dig into point one, evidence and belief. Let's go back and look at verse 29 real quick. Go back to verse 29. Here the Pharisees are responding to the blind man who's just incredulous. The Pharisees can't see what's happening and they say, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Here we see the Pharisees displaying something called willful ignorance. Operative word in that phrase is willful. Rather than try to give you a definition for willful ignorance, I'd like to just illustrate it for you, okay? Recently, I got my ankle jacked up uh, pretty bad doing jujitsu. I was limping around for a little while, probably tore a tendon, something like that, a ligament. When Trevor Butcher heard about my injury, he very lovingly said to me, Hey man, maybe jujitsu isn't the best thing for your body. To which I replied, Whatever do you mean? He then proceeded to list off just a short list of my very recent injuries neck, hand, ankle. I responded with, What's your point? To which he replied, 
uh, yeah, there seems to be a pattern here to which I replied, yeah, I'm not seeing it, right? That is willful ignorance. I want to do what I want to do. And I'm not going to let something like facts get in the way of my desires. This is exactly what the Pharisees are doing in John 9. They are ignoring the facts of Jesus, which have been made plain to them, because the reality of who Jesus is, is getting in the way of their wicked desires. We've already seen that they love the darkness. They hate the light. Therefore, they will deny any facts that point them to the truth that Jesus is the light. So they say things like, we don't know where this man comes from, even though he has told you and shown you over and over again exactly where he comes from. You remember back in John chapter 8? Turn back there with me. Just a, a quick flip of the page. We can start in verse 14. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. Now go to verse 23. He said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Now go to verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God. Jesus has already told them over and over again. That's just from one chapter where he comes from. And not only did Jesus tell them with his words, but he proved where he's from with his works. In John 9, he takes this man who has been known by all to be blind since birth, and he heals him, which is not a normal thing, you see. The blind man says it himself, since the beginning of the world, have you ever seen anyone do anything like this? Uh, no, it's not common. Remember that whenever some fake preacher on TV says that he has the power of healing. If you really have the power of healing, let's mean you go down to the children's hospital and fix all these kids dying of cancer. I digress. The Pharisees are so willfully ignorant of Jesus that even the blind man cannot believe how hard-hearted they are. Look at verse 27 in John 9. He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? And then he, this is pretty slick, he burns them. He says, do you also want to become his disciples? Now look at verses 30 and 33. 30 through 33, the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since before the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Even this blind man, or once blind man, can see that the Pharisees have an agenda. They have an anti-Jesus agenda, and it's leading them to reject the plain truth before them. Think about it. By the time we get to the healing of the blind man in John 9, Jesus has demonstrated the veracity of his identity claims over and over and over again. And then when we get to John 9, we have another very public, very obvious demonstration from Jesus, which should 
lead the Pharisees to believe, which would lead the Pharisees to believe if evidence were the issue. But evidence is not the issue. Here's your takeaway. Here's something for you to write down in the note section of your worship guide or in the corner of your Bible. People do not reject Jesus primarily due to a lack of evidence. People do not reject Jesus, fail to believe in him, so on and so forth, primarily due to a lack of evidence. They reject Jesus for all kinds of reasons that have next to nothing to do with sufficient evidence. In this text, we see at least one reason why the Pharisees don't believe in Jesus, and it has nothing to do with evidence. Look at verses 33 and 34. Starting in verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Verse 34, they answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us. One of the reasons why the Pharisees can't reject what the blind, uh, why they can't receive what the blind man is saying is because of their pride. They think that this man had to have been born blind because of his sin. Therefore, they are morally superior to him. And therefore, anything that he says can't be true. And if it is true, it's going to be a death blow to their pride. We've seen elsewhere in the Gospel of John that people don't believe in Jesus, not because of a lack of evidence, because of the sin that lives in their hearts. Turn with me back to John chapter 3. Chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, that's Jesus, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. We think, oh, they don't receive Jesus because they can't see Jesus. They can't see his light. No, they see it. They don't want to be exposed by it. So they reject it. You can see this very clearly spelled out in Romans 1, which we read together. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Save your place in John 9. Flip on over to Romans chapter 1. In verse 18. (coughs) For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, listen, listen to this phrase, by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's just John 3. They love darkness. They love their wicked deeds. So the the truth, the light comes to them and they suppress it. They close their eyes to it. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. What can be known about Jesus is plain to the Pharisees. Why? Because it's been shown to the Pharisees. The issue is not that they can't see it, it's that they suppress it. The Pharisees are like a walking, talking illustration of Romans chapter 1. But it's not just the Pharisees. The Pharisees are representative of all of fallen humankind. The truth of the matter is that humans in our sin suppress the very obvious truth of God because we love our unrighteousness. 
This kind of willful ignorance is alive and well today. It didn't pass away when the last Pharisee died. You've probably encountered this kind of willful ignorance, first of all, in your own life, before you became a Christian. The truth of God was just radiating out. It was just hitting you 7,000 ways from Sunday, and you were just denying, 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 until you didn't. We'll talk about why you didn't a little later. You probably next see this kind of willful ignorance in many of your evangelism efforts, which I hope you have evangelism efforts. And when it comes to persuading people to believe in Jesus, here's, here's another little takeaway for you. You have to remember that evidence is not enough. We all too believe, easily believe the lie because we are children of the Enlightenment. We believe the lie that says, if I can just give my mom, my coworker, my friend, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, my cousin, my fellow church member, whatever, the best available evidence for the gospel, they'll believe. Right? We think, oh, they're rational creatures. I'll just show them this, and then they'll see it, and then that'll change their hearts. We think that unbelief is an evidence issue, but Scripture is clear that it's not. It's a sin issue. It's a heart issue. The Bible says that because of sin, we not only live in moral darkness, but intellectual darkness. And listen, you don't even have to be a Christian to understand this, to understand that your rational faculties are actually slaves to the flesh. The very much not Christian Scottish philosopher David Hume once had this to say about the connection between reason and the passions. He says, reason is and ought only to be the slave of the passions. He, was just, he thought his way to a truth that the Bible already told us a long time before he was born. But he could just observe the world and see that that was true. Most of us think that our reason will always inform our affections. But Hume and the Apostle Paul and Jesus are all in agreement in their opposition to that view. They tell us that what we love determines what we believe, which means that men who love the darkness will go to great lengths to avoid believing the gospel light. Here stands the blind man right before you, giving you the testimony, and you'll do anything in the world to make sure that you don't believe it. I remember trying to evangelize a coworker of mine back when I was in the military. He, he wanted to talk about, every, you know, Noah's Ark and all this stuff. I was like, let's talk about the resurrection. You know what I'm saying? Let's, let's just, if, if, listen, if Jesus is really not in the grave, then we'll figure out Noah's Ark, okay? Let, let's talk about the resurrection. And he said, okay, I will. Let's, let's, we'll talk about it. I said, well, just give me some time. I want to make sure I give you the best arguments, you know? So I spent three months just deep dive, studying the evidence for the resurrection, nonstop, every free moment, reading all the books, all the articles, listening to all the podcasts. I had all the intellectual ammo for this shootout. And I, I really did have it. It's not that I thought that I had it. I really did have it. Why did I have it? Because Jesus really got up out of the grave. I had the facts on my side. And I was fully prepared. And I went into our first meeting like a machine gunner and nom, you know, just fortunate son was playing in the background of my mind and everything was moving in slow motion. To mix metaphors a little bit, I felt like Neo in the Matrix, you know. We talked for hours, gave him my best arguments. When we were done, he just sort of shrugged his shoulders and said, that's pretty unconvincing. 
That's a bummer. Now, let me embarrass myself, okay? I spent more or less three months studying the resurrection so that I would be intellectually prepared to evangelize my coworker. And I don't know that I, I don't remember really ever sitting down to pray for that conversation. Why? Because on some level, I mistakenly believed that my coworker had a brain problem instead of a heart problem. I thought he had an evidence problem when in fact he had a love problem. If I would have understood what was happening here in John 9, I would have spent half as much time studying evidential apologetics and I would have spent much more time in prayer. I would have spent less time trying to change his mind and I would have spent more time going to God on his behalf, asking God to change his heart so that he could see the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Friends, at the end of the day, no amount of evidence matters when you present it to people who cannot see. Now, to be clear, I don't want to make it sound like presenting evidence doesn't matter. There's a role in apologetics. We can talk about different kinds of apologetics, but Presenting evidence for the truthfulness of the gospel is a worthwhile endeavor. Jesus himself said that his works were bearing witness to him. That means he was presenting evidence for himself to the world, even though he knew that they would reject that evidence by and large. But here's where we get really practical. I mean, think about it. Think about it. Jesus went around displaying the fullness of his identity to anyone who would listen. How did that go for him? Some people received him, but most people rejected him. So this is your practical takeaway. Bear witness to Jesus. Carry out your evangelism efforts. Have your apologetic conversations with measured expectations. Measured by what? Measured by your theology of how belief and unbelief works. We have to remember that wherever Jesus went, people received him and rejected him. And they largely rejected him. And if that's true of Jesus, who communicated himself perfectly, how much more true is it going to be of you and me who, you know, more often than not mess up and don't really say what we should say the right way at the right time? At the end of the day, we just need to be concerned with being faithful in our representations of the gospel and our witness to Christ and consistent. We just have to leave the rest to God. Samuel Rutherford once said it in this way. He said, duties belong to us, but results belong to God. As we wrap up point one, I just want to draw your attention to one more very important thing, and it's, it's right there in verses 24 and 25. So flip back over to John 9, verses 24 and 25. <coughs> So for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind, and they said to him, give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. So <laughs> if you want to glorify God, you better agree with us. Verse 25, he answered them, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Friends, it's really important that you know that Jesus does not expect you to be an expert in textual criticism so that you can defend the, the, the truthfulness and the veracity of scriptures. By the way, the Bible doesn't need you to defend it. 
the Bible. What does Charles Spurgeon say? It's like a roaring lion. You know, roaring lions don't need to be defended. God doesn't need you to be an expert in the Thomistic proofs that logically demonstrate the existence of God. Jesus does not need you to defend the historicity of the resurrection to a world that chooses darkness instead of light. To be sure, all of those things are good and important, and we should thank the Lord that there are people who are experts in such things in the church, people who dedicate their time to that. But I want you to know that that may never be a part of your Christian ministry, and that's okay. That doesn't make you a second-class citizen in the church. There are some Christians who are exceptionally gifted in evangelism and apologetics. And you may look at them and think, man, I'm kind of B-team, you know? I can't argue the way that they argue, you know? I can't interact with people. I can't evangelize the way that you do. Well, the Bible says different gifts are given to different people in the church. You may not be gifted in that way. But that doesn't mean you still can't bear witness to Jesus. It doesn't mean that you don't have a testimony to tell. Even if you are so timid and so anxious and you are such an introvert and you struggle so much to say hard things to people, even in public spaces, and you, every time I try, Sean, I just I find myself fumbling and stumbling over my words, you still have a story to tell. And you can tell it by God's grace. You can be like the blind man. You can say, listen, I don't have the answer to all of your questions. I don't know how all those animals got onto that ark. I, I don't know how to explain how, as my daughter asked me recently, well, if everyone had been wiped off the earth, then how did they make new babies if they were all part of the same family? Well, there's an answer for that. You may not know the answer, and someone may think that they have you in a gotcha moment when they hit you with that answer. Friend, you don't have to have the answer to that in order to be a faithful Christian. All you have to do is be able to tell the story of what Jesus has done in your life. You were blind, but now you see. You were deaf, but now you hear. You were lame, but now you walk. As the words of Ephesians 2 say, you were blind. Um, you were dead, but now you live. Point number two, theology and belief. I've got two things that I want you to see here. They're, they're pretty related, but I'm going to try to separate them. Subpoint number one, I want you to see from this text that theology matters. Let's begin with a little comparison. Look at verse 17. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. Now look at verses 35 and 36. Jesus heard that they cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. As we encounter the blind man in verse 17, it seems like, spiritually speaking anyways, he's headed in the right direction, right? He's on the right track. He gets it. They say, what do you think about Jesus? He's like, shoot, he's not normal, you know? He's not your average Joe. He, he did this. He's got to be, what, at least a prophet? That's, that's where this guy is. That's good, but it's not enough. You have to remember, our Muslim friends believe that Jesus is a prophet. Just believing that Jesus is some kind of special human is not believing in Jesus as he has fully revealed himself. 
Jesus has revealed himself as much more than that. We just read in verse 35 that Jesus reveals himself as the Son of Man. Well, what does that mean? Well, the Son of Man, it's, it's this messianic title. It's, it's the anointed one of Israel, the, the God-man who will come and be the Savior to all of God's children. Okay, that's how Jesus identifies himself. And it is only after the blind man comes to accept this very specific revelation about who Jesus is that he is able to worship Jesus. Which means that he probably wasn't saved before this. Well, the same thing is true of us. When we only have some vague, foggy, blurry vision of Jesus, we will not be able to offer him true worship. A Jesus who is just a good guy or who is just a prophet is not worthy of our worship. But if he is who he says he is, well then, worship is our only option. Also, just a quick little side note. I want you to please note here that this man worships Jesus and Jesus does not rebuke him. That's pretty significant. Elsewhere in the New Testament, whenever angelic figures come and they're radiating the glory of God and they, they come and they appear before a human being and the human being is like, oh no, I'm about to die. And they fall down and they've never seen something so close to a deity. They fall down and they begin to worship. What do the angels do? They say, no, 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 stop that. I'm, I'm a created being just like you. And then they make them stand up and you can't worship me. Jesus does not stop this man from worshiping him. Now, I remember trying to help some friends in town find a church. They were leaving their unhealthy church and they were trying to find a better church. This was many moons ago. And so I was off with the military and I was, I was on the internet. I was trying to find the best church that they could go to here in Decatur. And I was reading websites, statements of faith. I was sending emails. I was even calling up pastors and speaking to them on the phone and I called one pastor, he was an associate pastor of a church here in town, and I got him on the phone, and I asked him a number of questions about the church, and I started asking them about where they stood doctrinally, you know, what do they believe, where are they theologically, and about halfway into that, the questions that I had prepared, the pastor cut me off, and he said, hey, hey, buddy, hey, listen, bud, which means something bad is coming, right, whenever someone says, hey, bud, hey, hey, tiger, listen, um, at our church, we're just, we just want to worship Jesus, you know? Like, we don't want to do all that doctrine and theology stuff. We just want to worship Jesus. Well, friends, that just won't do. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. You cannot worship Jesus without knowing Jesus. And you cannot know Jesus unless you study how he has revealed himself to us in his word by the help of his spirit. Now, I want to be clear, it is entirely possible for you to know all the theology in the world and to be totally unregenerate. You can study Lewis Burkhoff's systematic theology all the way to hell. And I think as the reformed type in this room, we'll be kind of surprised to see who made it to the New Jerusalem and who didn't, because we all too often equate knowing things about God with actually knowing God. Theology is not enough to save us. But here's the point. Worshiping Jesus is more than knowing doctrine, but it is never less than knowing doctrine. Allow me to illustrate. Let's say that one day I make a new friend, as I'm inclined to do. I'm like people Velcro. And so I, 
I make a new friend, and as I get to know him, I begin to tell him about my wife. Ah, my lovely wife. And I'm extolling her glories, and I'm just, oh, and if you could meet her, oh, you would love her. And isn't she just the best? And she's changed my life in ways that you couldn't even imagine. And he's so taken back by this way that I'm like bragging on my wife. He's like, well, I got I to gotta get to know her. Like, tell me more about her. He's asking me questions like, well, what does she look like? And what is she into? And where is she from? And what does she love? And what does she hate? And does she have any talents? And favorite color, favorite movie, favorite candy? And what if as he was asking me these questions, I just kept saying, well, geez, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. He might just say, you know, friend, you, 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 you claim to love your wife, but you don't really seem to know her. You, you can't really tell me anything about her. I mean, do you even know her name? My friend might ask me, Sean, how on earth can you claim to love someone that you don't even know? How indeed? This is why theology matters. The second thing that I want us to see here in this point is that miracles are not enough. Miracles are not enough. Amber and I were recently in the home of a lovely Christian family in Huntsville. We didn't know the family very well. They invited us over for dinner so that we could get to know them. And, uh, you know, we did what I think Christians tend to do in situations like this. We, we, we sat around the table. We ate casserole, right? There's always got to be a casserole involved. And we shared our testimonies and we talked about our kids and they even sang the doxology after their prayers before their meal. I thought, wow, that's really cool. We should start doing that in our house. You know, it'll be awkward, but we'll power through. And then, uh, you know, after dinner, we moved over to the living room and we sat on the sofas and we began to talk. And as I sit down on the couch, I look up and on this bookshelf, I see a Nazi paraphernalia. I see a Nazi helmet sitting right there on the bookshelf. Write this down, note takers. Signs are not enough. Signs, by the way, what I'm just using interchangeably for the word miracle. Miracles in the Bible, same thing as signs and wonders. Let's, let's, let's leave the Nazi paraphernalia aside for a moment. Come back to John 9. What we see in John 9 is that the healing of the blind man was not sufficient to save him. After he had received a miracle from Jesus, he had not, in fact, come to believe in Jesus for salvation. The sign that Jesus performed was not sufficient for salvation. Why? Because the sign needed to be interpreted. Jesus had to go find the man after he was healed, after he was cast out by the Pharisees, and teach him something. He had to give him theology. After the blind man was healed, he was willing to say some generally positive things about Jesus, but he hadn't begun to worship Jesus. Why? Because the sign was not sufficient. Think about what a sign is for a moment. A miracle, a sign. A miracle is just a symbol. Well, a symbol of what? Well, it's a symbolic representation of truth. But what truth? Well, it just depends on the miracle. Let's consider this miracle, the healing of the blind man. What was this miracle a symbol of? It was the symbol of the fact that Jesus is the light. The man is living in darkness. Jesus comes and touches him and brings light into the darkness. That's what this miracle represents in symbolic form. 
I hope you get the point because it's a simple one. Miracles are good, but they are not sufficient. Signs and symbols must be interpreted. And here's the issue with interpreting signs. When they are interpreted by sinners, they are very often and easily misinterpreted. Back to the Nazi helmet. Some of y'all were like, what? You can't just leave. What? What's happening? Back to the Nazi helmet. Asking about the helmet. Excuse me. After asking about the helmet, I was relieved to find out that uh, this helmet had belonged to the man's grandfather. Then I wasn't relieved. I was like, in what way was your grandfather a Nazi? He goes, no, no, no. My grandfather was a soldier and he killed a Nazi and then he went and took the helmet off of the dead Nazi and brought it home as a souvenir to celebrate how evil Nazis are and the triumph of good over evil. I'm like, okay, I can get behind that. In order to make sense of this symbol that I saw, I just saw a symbol there. I saw the helmet with the swastika prominently displayed in the center of his family. That's a symbol. In order to make sense of that symbol, I needed the one who created it to explain it to me. You see? I could have interpreted it any number of different ways. What I needed was for the one who created it to explain to me why it was happening. The same thing is true of God. We need God to explain to us the meaning and significance of his signs and wonders. Think about what happened in the book of Acts. When the disciples went out in the book of Acts, there were a bunch of miracles, but that's not all there were. All there were. The disciples, what is the main thing they went out and did in the book of Acts? They went out and they preached the gospel. The symbols, excuse me, the signs were just symbolic attestations to the gospel that they were preaching. Signs detached from propositional truth claims like preaching and teaching are insufficient because they can be variously interpreted. You'll notice that in this text, Jesus asked the blind man in verse 35, after he's been healed, if he believes in the Son of Man. And what does the blind man say? He he says, well, who is it? Well, who is the blind man? Apparently, excuse me, who is the Son of Man? Apparently, being healed by the Son of Man wasn't sufficient to tell him that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of Man. He needed more than that. He needed teaching. He needed propositional truth claims. He needed theology. The miracle, the miracle showed the man that, he was, that Jesus was in some way of God, but he needed theology to tell him exactly in what way Jesus was of God. And that's true of us, friends. It's true of us in the whole world. In the American Gospel documentary, which if you haven't seen, there's free DVDs in the back there, Uh, charlatan and false prophet Todd White is videotaped going around healing people, healing people who have one leg shorter than another. And when he does this, after he heals the person with the short leg, he says, you know, I just want you to know that Jesus loves you. That's all I want to say to you today. I don't want to say anything else. Just Jesus loves you, and I'm out of here. Let's... uh, leave aside the fake healing for a moment and just focus on Todd's evangelism tactics. Todd White, the way that he's thinking here is the exact opposite of what we find in John 9. Todd thinks that the miracle is enough. We don't need to teach people who Jesus is. We just need to give them a miracle and tell them that Jesus, whoever he may be, loves them, whatever love means. 
That's evangelism in his mind. But you'll notice that in John 9, Jesus doesn't walk up to the blind man after he heals him, and he doesn't just say, hey, I just want you to know I love you. That's all I want to say to you today, you know? I just, I love you. Friends, you have to know that the most unloving thing we can do for those who are lost is to serve their physical needs and then just walk away. The worst thing we can do for someone who's lost is bless them with a good deed and then move on to give them a miracle and nothing else, to dig a well but not preach the gospel, to teach life skills but not give them gospel truth that will save their life eternally. The most unloving thing we can do for those who are lost in sin is to be the hands and feet of Jesus but not the lips and tongue of Jesus. To do the good deeds of Jesus without speaking the words of, de- of Jesus. Good deeds may in fact leave people favorably inclined to the idea of Christianity in some vague and general way. But that's not what we want from people. We want for people to worship the risen Christ. And in order to worship the risen Christ in all of his glory, they must be able to see him. And if he's not here, how can they see him? Because we preach him. We tell them the truth of who Jesus is. We proclaim Christ and Christ crucified. We represent Jesus to him, not only with our works, but with our words that they may see. Point number three, election and belief. Allow me to begin our final point by telling you the tale of two Shans. There were once two Shans. Both Shans lived in the same neighborhood, just two doors down from each other. Uh, both Shans lived under the same economic hardships, Section 8, housing, food stamps, free lunch program, etc. Both Shans have the same level of education, having dropped out of school as soon as the law would allow. Both Shans come from fatherless homes. Both Shans grew up with drug-addicted mothers. Both Shans were angry and loved to fight in their adolescence. Both Shans used drugs to escape their pain. Both Shans sold drugs to support their addictions. And both Shans committed violent crimes and would lie and cheat and steal to get whatever they wanted. One Sean is standing here before you today. That's me. The other Sean is currently serving life in prison for murder. Here's the question. Why am I here and he's there? Well, Sean, I mean, you, obviously, the, you know, you had economic advantages. No, we lived under the same economic conditions. Well, educational then, nope. We had the same education. Well, your home life, nope. Both had no fathers, grew up with drug-addicted mothers. What can you possibly say? Why am I here and he is there? This is the question that we might ask as we conclude our time in John 9. Why do the disciples believe and receive Jesus as a light, but the Pharisees reject him? I mean, I don't know if you remember from last week, but the disciples and the Pharisees have much of the same theology. The disciples thought this man must be blind because of either his sin or the sin of his parents. 
The Pharisees thought the same thing. And yet, the disciples received Jesus and his correction to their theology, and the Pharisees don't. Why? We might also ask the same question of the blind man. As we've seen all throughout John's gospel, Jesus does tons of miracles, and he preaches the gospel, and he reveals his identity to a bunch of people, and yet the vast majority of the people who hear Jesus' preaching and receive a miracle from his hands do not believe in him. But the blind man does. Why? This question, as the best questions do, leads us to ask other questions. Questions like, why did Abraham heed the voice of the Lord but not Lot? Why did Esau choose the things of the flesh even as Jacob chose blessing? Why did the word of the Lord soften the heart of Moses even as it hardened the heart of Pharaoh? Why did Peter, after denying Jesus, run back to Jesus in his brokenness and pain and shame even as Judas was committing suicide. Moving outside of Scripture, we might ask, for instance, why Blaine is here this morning and his twin brother, who had exactly the same upbringing as him, has rejected God. We ask why this Sean, not that Sean. We ask, why are you here? And those people are out there. On the last day, we will stand before the judgment seat of Jesus and we will see the final separation of the sheep from the goats. And as we see the goats being gathered together, gathered up like chaff to be burned, on that last day, we will still be asking, why me? And if you've never asked that question, why me, I just don't think you understand grace. Jesus had already, by the way, told everyone why some people come and other people don't. And maybe you missed the answer. It was in John 6. We didn't really harp on it, but turn back there with me. Go to John 6. Start in verse 44. verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now go down to verse 65. And he said, This is why I told you, I've already told you this, that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by my Father. Now flip with me over to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Paul writes, He, being Christ, or excuse me, the Father, chose us in Him, that's Christ, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. 
So who does the Father draw to Jesus? If, if you coming to Jesus is dependent on the Father drawing you to Jesus, well, how does God decide who to draw and who not to draw? Well, he draws those whom he chose before the foundation of the world so that they would be holy and blameless. So why are you here today holy and blameless before God as a professing Christian, having Christ's righteousness imputed to you? Because you were chosen. Because, as verse 5 says, in love he predestined us. Sean, I could never believe this junk. I believe in God's love. Well, friend, you got something to figure out. Because verse 5 says that the predestination of God is deeply rooted in the love of God. Now turn with me to Acts 13. Acts 13, verse 44. <clears throat> the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. That's a good thing, right? But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by, uh, spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. How many Gentiles believed in the Lord that day as they heard the word? As many as God had appointed. As many as God had predetermined. As many as God had chosen and predestined to believe. Why Abraham and not Lot? Why Jacob and not Esau? Why Moses and not Pharaoh? Why Israel and not the nations? Why the disciples and not the Pharisees? Why the blind man and not others in the Gospel of John? Why you? Why me? Because God. That's why. Ephesians 1.11 says this, We have been predestined for salvation according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. You may not like it. You may struggle to understand it. You may even deny it. But the one thing you cannot do is change it. The Lord our God is a sovereign God who draws men to Himself according to the counsel of His perfect and eternal will. His unalterable will. Let me just show you one more example of this. Sometimes I think we think that this thing is just like this New Testament phenomenon, and it's not. The New Testament is just the fullest revelation of everything that had already been revealed in the Old Testament. So turn with me to 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 30.
We're going to start in verse 6. 2 Chronicles chapter 30. <clears throat> so, couriers went throughout all Israel and Judah with letters from the king and his princes, as the king had commanded them, saying, O people of Israel, return to the Lord the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may turn again to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Basically, God judged you through Assyria. The ten tribes were wiped out. God, is, he still loves you, wants to be gracious toward you, towards you, so, you know, repent, come back home. Verse 7, do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were faith, faithless to the Lord, God of their fathers, so that he made them a desolation, as you see. Do not now be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and, and come to his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever, and serve the Lord your God, that his fierce anger may be turned away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn his face away from you if you return to him. Uh, what are these couriers preaching? repentance and faith, repent and believe, right? That's what they're preaching. Verse 10, so the couriers went from city to city throughout the country of Ephraim and Manasseh and as far as Zebulun, and, uh, but they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. However, some men of Asher, of Manasseh, and of Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. Well, praise God, some people got saved. The vast majority of the people rejected the preaching but some didn't. Why? Verse 12. The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. What's happening here? The Lord sends out these messengers, these preachers, to call Israel to repentance. The messengers were, by and large, rejected. They were laughed to scorn, except a select few. A select few repented and believed in the word of the Lord. What was the difference between those who rejected the word of the Lord and those who received the word of the Lord? It was the hand of the Lord on their heart. This is the pattern that you will see all throughout Scripture. From our perspective, we just see a bunch of people not believing and then some people believing, and we go, I wonder why that is. And we tend to think in human tendencies. We tend to think of material factors. And, but behind the scenes, God is working in the hearts of those who believe. And occasionally, he reveals to us exactly how he's working. So, why this Sean and not that Sean? Why you and not someone else? Why the disciples and not the Pharisees? Because God. In closing, we should look at verse 40. Go back to John 10 with me. <coughs> Excuse me, John 9. Look at verse 40. Some of the Pharisees near him heard him saying these things and said to him, Are we also blind. 
Jesus tells everyone around once again the purpose of his mission. I've came here to, to be the light. And the Pharisees are in, incredulous. They just, they can't believe. Jesus seems to be insinuating that they themselves are blind. And so they ask him, well, wait a second, wait a second. You are saying that we are blind. You, Jesus of Nazareth, are saying we, the Pharisees, are blind? And of course, we know the answers. The Pharisees have demonstrated their utter blindness over and over again. In verse 16, this man is not from God, say the Pharisees, blind. In verse 24, they say, give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner, blind. In verse 29, we do not know where Jesus comes from, blind. Talking to the blind man, they say, you were born in utter sin, that's why you're blind, Even as they try and account for someone else's blindness, they are demonstrating their own inability to see. But here's the thing. They thought that they could see. They thought they could see, which made them, according to Jesus, extra guilty. Look at verse 41. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Here's where this matters for you. If you're here this morning and you claim to know God, you you claim the title of Christian for yourself. If you're out living your life, you're at Moe's for lunch and you're talking to someone and they maybe they come up and they try to evangelize you and you say, no, I'm a Christian. You don't need to do that. I'm, I'm with you. I'm on Team Jesus. If that's you, but you are actually living in darkness, you are extra guilty. Why? Because you profess to see. Even this morning, you have received the light of the gospel. You have heard the word of Christ. You have witnessed the power of the gospel in the gathering of the saints. You have looked into the perfect law of God, which has revealed to you the very nature of your sin. In the gospel, you have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Or have you? Have you seen it? Is it possible that you're sitting here thinking, I see the light, when in fact you are blind? I know if you're a member of this church or if you've been visiting regularly, you might be thinking, man, Sean, do you ever not beat that drum? Yeah, I do if I'm preaching in Seattle or in Tajikistan or in China. But when I'm in Decatur, Alabama, one of the most church cities in the world, full of people who think that they know Jesus, but are really just wrapped up in some form of cultural Christianity, no, I'm not going to stop beating that drum. I'm going to beat it over and over and over again, and I'm going to pray that God will bless it, and that he will wake some of us up out of our spiritual slumber, and that he will reveal to us that we cannot see the way that we think we do, that we are, in fact, blind. And here's the counterintuitive thing about the gospel. The only way for us to See is to first admit that we're blind. And this morning, Jesus is calling you to just recognize the truth of your own soul if you cannot see. And he's, he's saying, listen, you tell me that you're blind, and I'll give you the ability to see. 
He may not spit in the mud and rub it on your eyes, but he'll do it. He'll open up the eyes of your hearts. That's what Jesus does. That's what he did for me. Come tell me, come find me after service and I'll tell you all about how he did it. He's calling you this morning to turn from the light, excuse me, to turn from the darkness and to come into the light. And you should know that Jesus is not unsympathetic to the darkness. On the cross, Jesus entered into the darkness. You understand that? Jesus is the eternal light of God. He's been that way since the beginning of, before the beginning of the foundations of the world. He's always been the eternal light of God. And on the cross, he went into darkness so that you might come out and into the light. On the cross, Jesus, the eternal light of God, became darkness for you. And if you will receive his light and step out of the darkness, well, then I think you can sing the words of our next song together in spirit and truth. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. It's like they wrote this song for my sermon. But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And there I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Now, Lord, I would be yours and yours alone and live so that all might see. The strength to follow your commands could never come from me. O oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose. And let my soul forever be. My only boast is you. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Let's pray. That is our only boast, God. Every person in this room has nothing more than what they have in you. The rest is an illusion. So God, help us to respond to you and to your gospel with joy. Help us to go back out into the world as happy Christians, resilient Christians who know what you have done for us. God, allow us to use our ransom life to tell of the glories of your son, Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.